Since you're a podcast listener, I bet there have been times you wish that you could talk directly with the host and podcast guest. Well, now you can jump into conversations with farm-to-table talk guests by downloading the Clubhouse app to your iPhone or Android phone. Clubhouse is a social audio app allowing users to communicate in voice chat rooms, in this case with farm-to-table talk podcast guests. Just download the app, follow me, Roger Wasson, and join the Farm to Table Talk Clubhouse rooms. It's free and fun to finally talk with the people you've heard in the podcast. Two-way communications on Clubhouse. What a concept. It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. Today we're going to be talking about a term called wilding. We're also going to talk about the act of becoming. Uh, act of becoming is regenerative agriculture. Uh, it's tying it to life itself. Man, what a broad, ambitious topic that we have. And I've got the, just the guy for it, Daniel Firth Griffith. Daniel, welcome to Farm to Table Talk. Hey, Roger, it's good to be with you. It's good to be with you. Good afternoon. Well, we got introduced because of uh, Abby Smith. And Abby did a podcast that many of my listeners will recall. It was just great talking about the Savory Institute. And she and I said, I'm fascinated by what the Savory Institute's doing. And she said, you really need to talk to Daniel. And, and now I am. And she introduced us and I get a chance to catch up with you. I don't know. How did Abby become such a fan of yours, Daniel? <laughs> I'm not I'm not entirely sure. Um, I'm not entirely sure. I'm a, I'm a massive fan of hers. If uh, if I have to be completely transparent, I think. Um, she is a leader in a movement uh, that has many leaders in it. And uh, we always call her a powerhouse of holistic management or the queen of holistic context or whatever phrase you want to use to describe her. None of them do her justice. Oh. Uh, I listened to that episode. She's amazing. Every podcast she's ever been a part of is just, um, it, it's, it's paralyzing to listen to. You can't move. You just want to keep listening. And, and she's truly brilliant. So I have no idea why she likes me. Uh, well, you know what, uh, although with all the good things you just said about her, I can picture her right now. She's like running up to the Oregon border with her, you know, earbuds in and hearing this podcast and probably blushing. And people are saying, why is somebody out here running in, uh, in, the, in the mountains that's blushing? And it's kind of she's embarrassed. You're seeing so many good things about her. And wow. I would just I would say as much as I've known, I'd say ditto, too. But there is a. Uh, I mean, there's a community of people that are inspired by the kind of visions that Savory's involved with. And and I think we're going to touch on all that today, but I want to kind of, where was your inspiration? I mean, you're kind of in the middle of this. We're going to talk about the way you live, the way you're into rewilding, what you're doing with the Savory Institute hub that you're involved with. You've written a, a book you're doing. You're getting out there and... And really, I was going to say, kind of spreading the religion, because I almost feel like it's a religion. It's at the very least kind of a spiritual journey 
that I see that happens to coincide with actually growing animals and and pasture and and nature. Um, how'd you get here? You know what what kind of brought you into this space, and then we'll expand what that means. I mean, a little bit, but uh, there was some point in time that you must not have had this vision, and then and then you got it, and you started going these directions, and that that's going to connect us with savory and farming and book writing and all that other stuff. So, yeah. uh, give us give us a little uh, explanation of how you slide into all of this. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's funny you mentioned, um, you know, it's like a spiritual thing that we're dealing with, right? It deals with the whole body. I was reading uh, Wendell Berry is a uh, idol of mine. I wish I could call him a mentor, um, but he's a distant mentor. I, I read his work all the time for inspiration. And, and I'm actually working on another book that includes some of his thought in it. And last night you were uh, reading The Art of the Commonplace, one of his essays in that uh, collection of essays, and uh, he, he talks about um, how in, in this greater movement, now he calls the movement reclamation agriculture. He's writing before the term regenerative really was, was mainstream, but I think it's actually a better word, which may be a future aspect of this conversation. But he, he writes that in reclamation agriculture and farming uh, in, uh, for, for nature is another way of saying it, um, that, that you really do get the unification of body, mind, and spirit. Right. How you eat is also how you think and how you live and what you believe and what you eat is a component of what you believe. Right. And it also produces thought. So it's a cyclical whole that we're dealing with. And I, and I think it's absolutely true. You can't understand my story or our work or really even the work of the Savory Institute without understanding that we work in holes, that how a human thinks is how he lived. Right. And uh, the reverse is also true. And what they believe is a component of that. Um, I'm a big fan of history. I'm a, I was a history major in college and uh, Winston Churchill has a phrase where he talks about thought and action and how we have to live lives in, in, in uniform uniformity to, to that reality that we all live and we all act and we all think. And there's tangents there to discuss, but it, it, it is truly interesting. The more you dive into the regenerative movement, what, what it is reclamation agriculture today, the more you see those, those principles and, and deep philosophies. Um, my, my story into this movement and, 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 and understanding where we are today uh, begins uh, in a totally different world. Uh, I was homeschooled. I grew up in Northeast Ohio, grew up on 30 acres, just, just south of Cleveland. Um, you know, all you, of my Were you near farms. the Malabar farms? I was. Yep. We used to go there every summer. Really? Yeah, because I've I've did a podcast about uh, about that, and I've got a stack of books here that I'm trying to get through of the Malabar Farm and Pleasant Valley. And yep. so, when you mentioned Northeast Ohio, I thought that was really interesting because um, you know you would think of somebody that had been to Paris and Hollywood and so forth and decided to get back to nature. Where would they land? And they landed, in, and he came back to Northeast Ohio. And and um, so we'll have to have people be sure that go find an old copy they have to go on yeah. amazon have them chase them down for you malabar farms and read it so i interrupted you there no so you're fine you're in fine. northeast it's, ohio it's worth the interruption there are amazing books amazing thoughts um yeah so i grew up in northeast ohio uh was a second son uh of four uh siblings and we were all homeschooled I had a very wild childhood uh, just on the periphery of civilization you know i always tell folks that we were about five minutes away from taco bell but you never would have known it 
and, uh, and, and we lived a life according to that. And my, my parents, um, my dad is a serial entrepreneur, very successful. My mom always believed um, that uh, to truly homeschool well, you had to do two things. The first of which was to inspire a sense of learning, a love of learning. And to two is to educate uh, that learning is possible and how, you know, and understand how one learns. And so she thought, hey, if we can, if we can just capture those two things, all of our, all of our kids, all of my siblings uh, would leave the nest, if you will, with the ability to do good, right? To be good, to do good uh, and whatever we chose to do. And, and so we grew up in some sort of freedom. Uh, there's more pictures in my childhood album of me half naked outside covered in dirt than not. So I was a blessed, blessed child, especially knowing what, what I know now of, uh, of health and child rearing. I was definitely a blessed child, but I never thought I would go into agriculture. Never thought I would I go into agriculture. My family is an agricultural. Uh, none of my distant relatives are, are farmers. Uh, my namesake is a Stanford MBA and serial entrepreneur and a venture, venture capitalist in China. And, um, you know, that was just, you know, we grew up in a wild uh, system, more or less, on the, like I said, on the periphery of civilization. But I always saw my life going more towards business and uh, finance or whatever it was, just obviously the opposite of, of what I understand farming to be today. And uh, was highly athletic um, in high school, state champion wrestler, highly recruited Division One football recruit. Uh, and then senior year, everything changed. I was jogging around the, uh, uh, the football field first day of two-a-days, my senior year in high school. Uh, at that moment, I had letters of intent to any Division One college I wanted to go to for nearly a full ride or a full ride. And, um, you know, life looked like it was going in a direction. And then uh, literally in a split second, everything changed. I collapsed on the football field. What we thought was, um, you know, an injury, a sports-related injury. Uh, we, we, we soon learned within a couple of months that it wasn't. Uh, it had no name, but basically what we understand it to be or understood it then and, and still understand it to be today was a, a, a near body uh, a degeneration event. Something was wrong somewhere in my genetics or whatever it was. It wasn't really well understood, um, but my bones were degenerating. Uh, my liver function and my kidney function were going down exponentially. And uh, I, I went through about seven ish years, six to seven years of uh a hard time. Um, you know, my body would, would go through cycles where I would lose 80 pounds in a month, right. 80 pounds. And, um, you know, life would halt and stop and we would figure out some sort of momentary relief and, you know, we would gain the weight back and then lose it again. And then, uh, we had hip surgeries and shoulder surgeries and I'm, I more or less lived in the hospital for, for that period. And, uh, a lot of details that I'm sparing, but the, the theme here, the point is, that life in this moment pivoted, pivoted from a healthy life, a, a more or less wild life to a very controlled life, right? I was living in hospitals. Uh, we traveled all around the country, visiting hospitals to then live in those hospitals. And, and um, obviously sports were out of the question. And, um, and, and we started to reevaluate a lot of, of, of what was and, and possibly what could be. Um, again, skipping over the details, there was one time I recorded an entire podcast episode over just my story and it was nearly two hours long. So not, not do I, not only do I one, not want to relive some of those uh, moments, but also two, there's no need. And, uh, I'm fast forwarding to the end of the story end of this epoch in the story now, but, um, it was, it was spring, um, maybe a decade ago. 
a couple years less. And um, I was married to my wife. Uh, by that time, she was working full time. I had barely any energy to get off the couch. Um, and I was reading a book on the back patio. We had made a little spring fire in this little chimenea right in my family's home. And and I was reading a book that was actually given to me by a good friend of mine who's a uh, larger cattle farmer, grass grass farmer, regenerative farmer from Northeast Ohio. He had given me Joel Salatin's book, Folks, This Ain't Normal. And uh, I didn't understand the coincidence or the irony or the beautiful, blessed reality of that gift in the moment as I do now. Um, but he had given it to me and I was reading it. And uh, I remember, I'll never forget these moments. I was sitting there, it was spring in Northeast Ohio. The winters are long. You have lake effect snow that lasts so painfully long into the spring season, but it was finally spring. The leaves were emerging. I remember there were being birds and it was just cold enough to need a fire, my ideal weather. And I'm um, reading this book and it's challenging paradigms. It's, it's questionably even changing my life. And my mom walks out of the backsliding glass door. And, um, you know, I've told this story literally hundreds of times, and, and I don't think I ever get through it without getting a little too emotional for my liking. Uh, but she walks out of the door and, and there was a literal tear in her eye and a little smirk on her face, just, just enough to see it, just a little side, side bit of joy coming out of her mouth. And, and she sits down at the table and put the book down and she says, Daniel, we've tried everything. And, and I mean it. And, you know, as an aside here, we had, I mean, we had lived at hospitals, we had studied uh, traditional Chinese medicine all the way through accepting whatever Western medicine could throw at us. We literally had tried everything from surgeries to tests, to procedures, to physical therapy, to living in the hospitals themselves, and nothing had worked. Um, you know, I was a division one football recruit. Um, I could bench 225 pounds, 21 times. I weighed 235 pounds. I could run very fast at my height. And now I was about 140 pounds and barely move. And it was just a truly, truly a sight to see. And so back to the story, she says, Dana, we've tried everything. And we had, and then she pauses and the pause was deafening. It was unbelievable. And then she said, but we haven't tried chickens. And the whole demeanor of the conversation, <laughs> I laughed, I giggled. I probably came close to crying. And she said, no, 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 you, you, don't, you don't understand. I mean this. I'm not joking. We, we've tried everything, but we haven't tried totally, totally changing your diet, not just in substance, right? But in quality. What if we participated in your health, in the growing of your own food? What if we changed your life, right? By actually not just participating in the growing of the food, but joining in that food's community? Yeah. What would happen? And so it's my wife and I's joke nowadays. And now the story is not, it's not so sad anymore. It's only up from here, but now we just joke. Um, but I never called my wife. She was working full time. She was not a part of this conversation that day, that instant, my mom and I bought a hundred black Australorp chickens from Murray, Murray Hatchery. And, uh, and my wife was thrown into it, I, I guess would be the joke. Um, in, in her, in her relief though, she did say a couple of days later that she, she would follow me into being a farmer. As long as we didn't raise rabbits, she was petrified of, of something of raising rabbits and we never have, we never talked about it since. Um, but, but that's really the story. Then um, we started working, as I said, the, the gentleman who gave me folks, this ain't normal uh, by Joel Salat and that same gentleman let me volunteer on his cattle farm. Uh, I was, I mean, I was weak. I was feeble. I knew nothing. And, and he, and he gave me strength and he paid me in livers and hearts and organs and bones and, and, you know, meats that he couldn't sell. And, 
it, it, it was unbelievable and life-changing. Grew up on my repertoire, uh, started a market garden, started a chicken operation on our own you know, family land, and then scaled and scaled and scaled. And now we run a 400-acre uh, you know, wildland here in Central Virginia. Wow. So, what a story. I'm in for the long version someday, too. But I really, <laughs> I really appreciate your getting us to that spot. So you're in Virginia. I mean, how did, how did you find, uh, how'd you find this farm that you're on? Yeah, that's um, a really good question. Uh, shorter story, but, but still a story. I'm a fan of stories. Um, we, my, my, my dad always wanted to retire and, and purchase a, a larger a, uh, acreage, um, you know, outside of the city, just to have a little bit more peaceful retirement. His life is very fast paced entrepreneur um, and he wanted the opposite for his retirement. And so all throughout my high school life, he always was throwing properties at me. Daniel, what if when you graduate college, we looked at a place like this? And so it was always there, you know, it was the future vision. But when we started actually understanding agriculture and life started to return um, and strength and, and weight, just physical weight on my, on my frame started to return, we realized that there was an opportunity, an opportunity not just to heal myself, but uh, we also believe that there were many people like me struggling, struggling with illness and disease that, you know, wasn't quite understandable or maybe curable, you know, via either Eastern or, or Western medical systems. Mm-hmm. Um, and and they, what they needed was connection and community and good food and nutrient rich food, et cetera. And so we, we started to postulate uh, the question of what if we can find land where dad can escape to and Daniel can farm. Mm-hmm. Right. So we started looking and looking. We actually found this farm probably three years before we bought it. It was on the market for about, I don't know, five times more than we wanted to pay for it. And so we were looking at a farm nearby. The realtor showed us this one as well. Our hearts fell for it. it had two houses, which obviously is what we needed, a place for my family and a place for my dad and my mom to retire uh, and escape to, you know, per their per their context and vision for their their retirement. Uh, but it was fenced and, and, and it had many springs. I mean, it was exactly the landscape we were looking for, just way too overpriced. And so we moved on. We forgot about it. And then uh, maybe three years later, the realtor called us. And my wife and I, we were vacationing at Virginia Beach. It was uh, April 12th. I'll never forget it. We were at, at, uh, at a dinner and my phone rang and it was the realtor and Morgan, my wife, was like, what, what is he calling about? Pick that up. So I picked it up and he said, Daniel, you have to come here now. And I said, his name was Tom. Tom, where's here? Well, what are you talking about? By the way, it's good to hear from you. I haven't heard from you in three years. And he goes, you have to come to uh, you know, the farm we showed you down here in Central Virginia. It's for sale again, and you got to come. And I was like, well, we're, we're in Virginia Beach. We're not far. And so we terminated our, our, our vacation short. I trusted the man for good reason, too. We showed up, and there was a logging operation on the farm, full-scale, clear-cut, cut-over logging operation on the farm. I said, Tom, what's going on? And he said, well, Daniel, the, 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 the property's price has, I mean, percentages of percentages. The, it was, the property was not free, but more or less in terms of property value and comps, I mean, it was free. And, uh, and he said, but you can buy the land, but you won't own a single tree. And so uh, I'm a, cre- a pretty creative person, as, as you probably can guess. Uh, at least you'll guess that after the conversations we have with the wildland and everything else. I'm also not afraid to stick my neck out. So I called my friend at the Virginia Department of Forestry and I, and I, and I said, Hey, what's, what's hardwood lumber going for right now? 
because that's what this place was. I mean, the, the, the sugar maple in front of my house, all the way through the 200 acres of hardwood forest, it was all sold. I didn't own a single tree, just the land. And, and my friend at the Virginia Department of Forestry said, Daniel, it's in the can. Nobody wants hardwood lumber right now. The market is absolutely tanking in hardwoods. And I was like, thank you. That's exactly what I wanted to hear. And so a couple of days later, uh, we had put in an offer. We were moving forward. Uh, we did a quick close, uh, very little inspections, because we knew in order to negotiate the timber, right, the timber contract or to stop the timber contract or whatever it was, we had to own the land. And so we did a qu- really quick close. And, uh, and, and again, long story short, uh, I walked up to the foreman of the logging operation who brought me then to the owner of the logging operation. His name was Gene Raglan. I'll never forget his name. I think very highly of him even till today, a uh, blessed old man. Um, and, and I said, Gene, it's good to meet. What can I pay you to stop? Right. What, 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 what sort of dollar value is worth it to you to stop what you're doing and leave, leave the timber. And he, and he sat back and he put his hand to his chin a moment. I will never forget. And he goes $83,000. And I was like, Oh, I mean, that's a lot of money. Don't get me wrong. Um, but, uh, you know, that's, 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 that's an easy buy, easy, easy, easy buy. I mean, the value, I mean, it's 300 acres of timber at this point. Right. And, uh, and so we made the deal and we closed and we moved onto the farm May 8th, I think barely 30 days later after vacation down at Virginia beach and saved a good amount of timber. They cut some timber, uh, which is part of the massive wildland uh, reclamation project that we're running here. Um, restoring a, a cut over, you know, clear cut piece. Um, it's taking a lot of work and care and time, but it's, it's starting to work. Uh, it's exciting stuff, but that's, that's our story. And wow. so we moved on, bought the timber back um, and uh, started the project. So is the uh, is the timber thick enough that um, I mean are you able to have good pasture within the timber uh, or around the fringe of the timber? We are, we are. So the farm has about a hundred acres of pure pasture. Um, I mean, when I say pure, I mean there's some trees. Thank goodness, and we've planted thousands and thousands of trees since we moved in. Um, but we, we grazed those pastures and then we're also slowly nurturing the forests and the peripheries of the forests and to truly, you know, develop silvopasture landscapes. Um, but the trees are gorgeous. I mean, they were, they were high value trees um, that we walked into. And, and so the problem for, with trees, I mean, having trees around are, are, are great, but if they're too thick, the pasture doesn't grow. I mean, right. I mean, that's, so you can't really kind of graze in the trees. Otherwise, you could have lots of animals and the goats go in and clean up and sheep do and so forth. But but you just don't get much growth if if you've got a real thick canopy of trees. That there's just not that much feed in the in the understory. Is that kind of true? It, it's, it's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. So when you're nurturing the forest for agroforestry or civil pasture type work, right? What you're trying to do is nurture the percentage of sunlight hitting the forest floor, yeah. right? Now it's contextual, right? If you want to grow mushrooms, you want to keep the canopy as high as you possibly can in terms of coverage because you want that shade component. Right. Um, you know, if you're trying to grow pasture, so a civil pasture, you want to reduce it down to, you know, some people argue, um, you know, you got to look at different university studies. Our, our focus is about 30 to 40% canopy coverage in an optimized woodland grazing system. And so, you know, if a closed canopy forest is 100% canopy coverage, 
we're looking at about, you know, one third of that for grazing. You know, I've flown back and forth across the country a lot. And one thing you really notice when you get from like where you were in Ohio all the way through to Virginia, there's a lot of trees. And when you start thinking about that, that, um, the potential to bring back more farming operations that utilize a combination of pastures and the, and the forest, which are naturally kind of occurring out there makes you feel like it's a frontier left Mm. of potential to produce more food regeneratively. No, it's an absolutely true statement. And, And it's also true ecologically, right? When you're thinking economically, you're thinking that all land costs money and if you are paying a mortgage on a landscape that you're not farming, right, then economics aren't really in your favor. And so increasing the pasture acreage you have, right, given this frontier, as you put it, is a, is a deeply economic, um, you know, position to be in. Uh, the, the abundance there is economic. But also, and, and, and you'll see this, um, you know, in our work at the Wildland, it's also deeply ecologic. In the, in the sense that never before in the history of Eastern United States, in the temperate climate, broad-leafed biome, um, has, have herbivores, you know, stayed out of forests. One of the only truly, excuse me, one of the only truly native species, herbivores, to uh, this, this area of the world. When I say native, what I mean is it was here long before humans ever got here. Like sure. That's how I'm finding the term native. It, it predates human existence here in North America was uh, the giant ground sloth, right? So this is like an elephant-sized leaf-eating herbivore, if you will, that, that uh, ran, you know, run around the forest and climb the trees. And I mean, that speaks volumes to the size of trees, right? Imagine if elephants were in the trees. What sort of tree diameter are we talking about, right? That, that's an unbelievable image yeah. of my head. Um, but, and so what, what, what we challenge, and, and, and maybe this is a good transition into the wildland. I mean, the wildland is a challenge. It's a very open and humble challenge to the modern world that maybe, just maybe, animals had done it right for thousands or millions of years, whatever, you, you know, the age of the earth you want to believe in or the science you want to agree with. Um, but they've done it well for really long. And if we can only reinstitute those actual patterns, right, we can actually reach long-term resilience and abundance. And what I mean by that, relating it back to the forests, our forests have never been closed off systems. Never, right? And there was always herbivores and larger species like the giant ground sloths running through it, climbing the trees, right? A closed canopy forest. In other words, potentially, right? This is still science getting played out, uh, at least in our understanding, but potentially closed canopy forests have never existed right? Put the cows in a woodland and have them walk through it. Put a hundred thousand cows in a hundred acre woodland and have them just walk through the woodland and tell me what the woodland looks like after the fact. Mm-hmm. It's not a closed canopy woodland, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we don't have a hundred thousand cows, you know, today on, on, in our little wildland project here of 400 acres. Um, but imagine what would follow such a disturbance event. So right? such an animal impact intense moment in ecologic history. Well, if you fast forward many thousands of years after the sloths, you've got uh, where I came from is the, the bison that were going through the area. And we were in prairie soils that still today have, you know, deep, rich, organic black soil from all the bison. That's probably, you know, six to 10 foot deep of uh, black organic matter. 
And, mm-hmm. and then, but still, even on our farms where I was at, there was always thickets and there were woods and there were some ponds and there was, um, you know, they probably it could have left even more of them, but, um, but to trace w- what we face today and what the opportunities are that we can go back to the beginning of agriculture. And, and, and you're going even beyond that, the uh, prehistoric times, that's humbling. I, you know, words fail me because it's, it's, um, it seems very respectful. It seems like, a and to engage like you, like you have there, um, it's it's impressive. And I would imagine that around you, there are people that have done other approaches that have clear cut the forest and have tried to uh, go to uh, row crops on land that's got more contour than they should probably be trying to row crop farm, that they would be better off if they let it be pasture. But I'm sure that, that typically there'd be a lot of people around that nonetheless are trying to um, try to farm it in those ways that, again, take the forest out and and be plowing, uh, you know, areas that they should have been leaving alone. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, um, Isabella tree is a, is a famous and, uh, widely published author in, in, in the, in the, in the world of rewilding over in the UK, uh, her, her methods and philosophies differ from ours, uh, but a lot of her words are brilliant. And, and she's, she's writing about these ancient times and, and what the world looked like in ancient times, prehistoric times. And, uh, and then she writes about today and the conservationists of today and the natural landscapes of today and what humans in our highly civilized world consider to be barbaric and uncivilized. And they're not the same things, right? And so what, I, what I'm saying here is, is this, actually wild landscapes of our prehistoric past did not look like conservate your conserved or national landscapes of today. Many, many uh, authors and speakers and activists are claiming this for the national park system for the United States in, in modern times, right? That Yellowstone, be it beautiful, is not natural, right? And when we took the wolves out, the elk and everything else overpopulated in the string banks, everybody, at least most people know this story, but the stream started to degenerate and deteriorate and we lost springs and we lost species. And then we brought in the wolves, Right. And what do the wolves do? The wolves controlled the elk, the elk controlled the stream banks and all of the holes, the interconnected and interdependent holes within holes emerged, emerged in very natural patterns and something was co-created. It was new to Yellowstone in our human memory. This was a new event in in the Yellowstone National Forest. And, And so there's a tension between what is natural and what we perceive naturalness to be. And so here at the Wildland, that's a daily challenge, you know, with our own paradigms, our own human constructs, our own farm business, right? In order to be here, we have to pay a mortgage, we have to pay property tax. And so this money has to generate some form of capital, but that's tension to the natural world. The natural world is patience. Emerson, he said, adopt the pace of nature. Its secret is patience, right? Our farm business, our profit and loss statement, our P&L, our tax returns, none of it is patient. Right. And so human systems, uh, be them social, be them economic, uh, be them uh, an attempt to understand ecology as conservationists and others do. And I include farmers in that conversation as well. It has to be checked by the actual wild, right? Our historical wild. And, And why does that matter? Some people argue that why does, you know, prehistoric landscapes, why does the landscapes of 5,000 years ago even matter to today? 
And the answer is genetics, but the answer is really epigenetics underneath the understanding of genetics, meaning that, um, you know, there's an oak tree, there's a white oak tree. We cored it when we first moved in, it was 347 years old. It's just outside this window here. That tree is only so old, right? But how old is its genetics, right? Where was its mother when it was planted? Well, mm-hmm. its mother was 300 to 1,000 years old when it was planted, mm-hmm. right? And we can very quickly go back in that tree's genetic legacy, if you will, thousands of years very quickly. And so when we're looking at that tree, that tree's genetics and epigenetics, right, which is the uh, climate adaptions or local adaptions of how those genetics were expressed, uh, are, are very old. They're not new, right? Only recently in the last 100, 150 years has that oak had to take uh, car- high levels of man-made carbon dioxide out of the air and put it into the soil or its trunk. That's a, that's a new phenomenon for that, that oak in terms of genetics. And so when you're nurturing the natural world, when you're trying to create an environment that is not new, rather is very old, you're dealing with genetics. Um, well, you're also then dealing with um, pigs and sheep and cows and horses, and, and, and they've all evolved. They're, they're, they don't look much like they did necessarily a thousand years ago or a couple thousand years ago, and you're incorporating them into it. So uh, how does that go? I mean, how do, you've got the space, you've, you've got the woods, you've got the hills, you've got the pasture, you've got the soil, you've got all of that, and then you're starting to put animals back in. And that they're animals that are of this century uh, in some cases, although you're you're using some very old breeds as as well. Uh, but explain that that you you're standing out here and and you're looking at this land without any animals, and you're going to say, "I'm going to reintroduce animals into this." How do you make that decision, and what animals did you end up with? Yeah, what what a question. Um, we all, so we always say the wildland is a challenge. Uh, but it's not to provoke argument, right? It's to reawaken abundance. And so whenever we're thinking of making a decision here, bringing in or introducing animals, it's not a question of uh, what do we need to challenge? What do we need to control? Uh, It's really of what sort of community do we need to nurture so that abundance can be reawoken? It's here, right? And, And we do a lot of consulting work, which is more of our relation to the Savory Institute we have our own institute. It's called the Rubinia Institute, which maybe we can talk about later on a future episode. But we do a lot of consulting work. And we're asked uh, quite regularly, we do a lot of land transition consulting, meaning that, you know, a thousand acre corn, soy and wheat farmer wants to turn into a regenerative grass farmer and we help them make it happen. And, uh, and they always talk about species, right? What sort of grass species do we need to plant in our cornfield uh, to graze it? And, and, and don't get me wrong, there's some contexts that demand it, but typically more, more than not, our response is the species are already there. Grass species as seed, as viable reproductive organs can exist in the soil profile for thousands of years. All we have to do is reawaken them. The abundance is already there. It just needs reawakened. And so when we're adding animals to our operation, yes, we don't have ancient bison roaming this area of the world that we can still draw from, right? That doesn't exist. In addition to them not not existing, opportunities don't exist. So for instance, my neighbor doesn't like my cows in his fields. My other neighbor doesn't like my pigs in her flower garden. And so we have to create false constraints 
Sure. Although sure. we're trying to create a natural world and those false constraints are fencing. Sure. And, sure. Um, and so in order to secure that fencing, right, we don't have the free ability to raise whatever we want. Um, I, on a side, I also struggle with the fact, you know, here deer are, are an incredibly native and, and incredibly wild. Um, I don't know. I, I struggle fencing deer. Deer to me are the ones that should be jumping fences, not constrained within. Um, that's another side note though, a tangent that is quite pregnant and heavy. Um, and so we picked cows, sheep, and pigs. What we're looking at here is function and the creation of relationship for community. A cow is an herbivore, right? It's a heavy cloven hoofed herbivore, four chambered stomach that takes in green vegetative matter and uh, poops it out the back end as biologically rich fermented green organic matter. This is a very good thing. And uh, bison do the exact same thing. Uh, we chose cattle. Uh, cattle are much easier to sell. In our opinion, cattle are much more versatile for the farm business. It's also unclear about the historical legacy of bison being in this area of the world. Uh, a, a lot of uh, archaeologists and anthropologists and zoologists um, have have only recently taken up the idea that uh, the bison emigrating to the east off of the Great Plains was a human-induced reality. Um, it's not natural. They weren't here because they wanted to be here. The humans had forced them this way thousands and thousands of years ago. And so when we couldn't make a perfectly natural decision, we made one that was deeply accessible to the farm business which is cattle. Um, but we manage those cattle as if they've been here for many thousands of years, right? We achieve herd impact. We call it in holistic management, regenerative VAG, the predator prey connection that naturally in nature predators, right? Surround herds of prey species, right? So let's say wolves or in our case, a very uh, ancient predator species here in the Eastern um, uh, Blue Ridge slopes uh, is the mountain lion. Right. So mountain lions were always uh, surrounding herds of herbivores, elk, deer, and in our case, uh, domesticated cattle. And uh, that surrounding force, this, there is a connection, a predator prey connection, that surrounding uh, forced these herbivores to herd together, to mob, right, to always be moving forward, uh, but also to develop tight bonds, those tight bonds between calf and cow between dam and sire and everything else, there were unified bonds within the herd for safety, right? It wasn't just physical, it was relational. The more close, the more unified the herd would be, the less would die due to predator attacks. And so, and so what, what developed out of that, what evolved from that connection, that relationship is regenerating soil, right? Increasing organic matter, carbon being sequestered within that increasing organic matter, uh, deeper roots for the plants, greater biodiversity, right? More abundance being awakened um, via the community between the predators and the prey. And so we do, we mimic that same relationship here at the Wildland. You know, we always tell folks uh, that, you know, we, we lost control a long time ago of this place. And I think that's very key. And maybe another thing we can focus on here. Um, we lost control. We, we don't castrate. We don't wean. We don't separate. We don't dictate breeding calendars, right? Cows breed whenever they want. Uh, you know, we don't believe that we have a right to decide when a woman gets bred. I just think that phraseology is, is insulting even to come out of your mouth. We don't registrate our animals. They are animals. They don't have numbers attached to them. You know, we don't break herd bonds and relationships. That goes back to weaning and castrating and separating. 
but all we focus on is, is building natural systems. So moving the animals, fences, right? That's about the only thing we control is where the animals are today. And that's the same for the cattle, for the pigs and with the sheep. If I can make a tangent here, this is, this is something that's very interesting. It's an emergent property of the wildland that it, emergent in the sense that we didn't design it. It just happened. And the abundance of that happening was so much greater than anything, any system we could have ever designed economically and ecologically. And that's with our pig system. And so we, we, we realized that certified organic, soy-free and non-GMO heritage hogs are very expensive. And we have a belief um, that everybody should be eating better food, not just rich people. Um, it's fine if you want to be a rich person, but everybody needs to eat good food. And the issue with certified organic, non-GMO and soy-free heritage pigs, right? Bacon, if you will, uh, is that it's very expensive and only a select population of the Central Virginia community could afford it. And so we knew we needed to innovate. It had nothing to do with wildness or wilding, right? Or the wildland project as a whole. It, it was due to economics. It was due to economics because at the very front of this, as you said in the beginning, spirituality and physicality, it's, it's unified, it's holistic. We have to find a universal and holistic uh, abundance where the entire community, human community, natural community, wild community, economic community, social community, it all thrives. And so we knew we needed to innovate our pig program. And so what we built uh, is something that I'm very, very pleased with economically. We were able to reduce input costs while not reducing the quality of the pork any bit. It's still certified organic, non-GMO, soy-free. They're still heritage pigs. Um, but we were able to reduce it down from 60% of those pigs' daily, diet, daily diets down to 0.5%, right? And, and, and the only way we did that was we released control. We basically fenced larger areas of the farm, let the pigs roam wild and free, let themselves nourish in whatever sort of water or spring systems they could find, and then we controlled where they were with systematic but nearly non-existent, very minimal feed distribution. So in the morning, we put the feed over here. Tomorrow, we'll put the feed a mile away from where we put the feed today. And so we're moving the pigs, but without excess human input. And we're only moving the pigs via feed. We're not feeding them so that we have pigs that are fat and healthy. Well, we back, up a, back up a second. Uh, when you were saying 60% was what versus uh, half a percent? 60% of the pig's daily diet was at first uh, supplemental feed, meaning that- Okay, like corn and corn and protein of some sort. Exactly. And now we're down to 0.5%. And so they now- get Everything else just out, out uh, roaming around and you know, exactly. rooting around in the, in the ground and eating acorns and whatever. Exactly. And, and so why does this work? Well, we built it for economic reasons. Right. But what I want to focus on here, and, and I've already done that. I think I've elucidated that. Well, what I want to do here is talk about the ecology. So regenerative agriculture, as I've already said here on this podcast, was built off of that predator prey connection that predators are always pushing and mobbing herbivores, the prey species for naturally in nature. That's that's what regenerative agriculture is built in. Well, the issue is what is a pig? Is a pig a predator or is it a prey species? Mm -hmm. Pigs are omnivores. I don't know. I, I think pigs are predators. Why? Pigs are predators because one, they eat anything. Two, they actually go and seek meat when you give them the free environment to do so. But also three, they hunt in packs. No pig in a free natural system wants to be in a sounder of a hundred pigs. 
you won't see it happen. Take 100 pigs, and we have many hundreds here at the Wildland, put them in a 400-acre paddock, let's just say, and tell me how many groupings and subgroupings and clicks of pigs are developed within the very first day. There's hundreds on hundreds. One and two pigs go off and fight by themselves. That's what they do. When a pig farrows, she doesn't farrow or calf, as, as the analogy would be, she doesn't give birth babies. in a herd, right? Cows, prey species, when they go to calf, they go off a little bit in the distance, but the coyotes, the mountain lions, the bobcats, the wolves, the black bears, they're in the distance. And so they don't go far. But when a pig sounder or when a pig pharaohs, excuse me, it goes off miles by itself to, to conceal itself, to build a nest, right? Because it is the predator. We have on wildlife cameras, a black bear staring down our boar. And nothing happened, right? The black bear respects the boar as a black bear would respect a wolf or a coyote. If that boar, right, is a wild boar, someone who has been birthed and built and raised in the free wild of, you know, I should say free wild as the most free we can possibly create the wild as long as I can't let my pigs run to your property. You know, that's that's quite the image. So setting this thing up, I envision almost backing a truck up and running them down a chute, putting cattle out there that are cows and bulls and boars and sows and rams and ewes. And then they go find and create their communities out there and and be themselves. And uh, other than some feed, like you're saying, you're doing with hogs, they're 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 finding their spaces and they're creating uh they're creating this pattern um that's a, that's a fascinating image to me of of unloading a a, a semi load of animals into a, a space like that and and turning them out and just see what nature does yeah and it, and it's very important to add to that imagery that human impact is still needed and, and what I mean by that is if you release a bunch of cattle on a 400 acre fenced wildland without any control and you don't control where they go without predator, uh, w- without predator pressure, right? Because my neighbor, he literally, I mean, he shoots coyotes whenever he can, right? The mountain lion has been eradicated from this region. We have one lone uh, black bear sow uh, that has cubs every year here at the wildland, but it's just one. Right. And so we don't have those predator species to create the predator prey connection. And so that connection is broken, which is why regenerative agriculture exists. Humans, the farmer, right, as we, we call them emergent conservationists, because I don't like the term farmer. Uh, but, you know, the quote unquote farmer becomes the wolf. And, and I mean that physically and I mean that emotionally and I mean that relationally. Our purpose here, right, is to guide the cattle as though we were the wolves guiding the cattle thousands of years ago. And and so although the pigs run wild, right, in that sense, they are the wolves. So they don't they don't need any human impact. We we do rotate them around because I wish they could roam hundreds of thousands of acres and and they obviously can't. Uh, We do use feed to systematically impact their environment and force them into uh, newer areas uh, of the wildland so that they don't, you know, truly degenerate. Um, Oh, I should say over degenerate uh, the landscape side note. So human impact is needed. And we we do do those things with cattle and sheep. We move them. We become the wolves. Um, Two little side notes that I find interesting and you can pick which one you want to jump down or you can find a third. Um, but one, the, the, the abundance following the, our pig operation. So where the 
pigs were last year, has more wildflowers, has more species diversity that is both palatable and non-palatable to other species on the farm, including humans, by the way, medicines that are emerging from the landscape as wildflowers or wild herbs that we've never seen before is unbelievable. Life is returning after their disturbance events. And, uh, and so out of this, we get human medicine, species diversity, increased carbon sequestration, new species emergence of species that nobody around us has seen for hundreds of years, or at least a hundred years. That's, that's probably more accurate mathematically. And then we get good pork that somebody could buy for three, three and a half dollars a pound. That's perfectly certified organic, perfectly non-GMO and soy free. Before this system emerged, before the wildland pig operation turned into what it is today, we were selling that same pork for, you know, probably 13 to $14 a pound. And so it's accessible economically. It's doable financially for the farm business. The ecology is thriving and we have happy pigs. When we field harvest pigs, we always joked, less of a joke, it's more of a giggle, that our pigs can run faster and jump higher than my wife can, a division one track athlete. And it's not false. It, it is not false. They are an unbelievable species to walk, to watch, just sprint for a mile. You can just watch them sprint for a mile and they look like horses, right? And it's a totally different result in terms of taste and flavor and, and nutrient richness due to that ac athletic activity. And, and our customers die for it. It's, a, it's unbelievable what emerges. I've got so many questions. This time has gone too fast, and I think we're going to have to have schedule another time for a podcast to get into some other things. But before we do, we painted a picture of the farm, of how you've gotten there, and people are getting the idea. But I think we should touch on the hub, and we should touch on the fact that you have a book. And, and let's mention these, but I, I really like to, I'd like to do it in you know, maybe within 10 minutes or so, and then we'll circle back because we are going to have to have some other conversations. But um, but I, just as I was afraid, we we're kind of running out of time in a way. But so let's let's kind of skip ahead to, you know, we've got the farm and there's so much more to tell about the farm, but they also have a hub and you have a role with that, too. And why don't you describe these other ventures and share them with our audience? Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you interjected there because I said I had two things. And I said one, and I've totally forgotten the other. So um, this is this is good. <laughs> um, yeah. So the hub. So in in twenty seventeen, uh, the farm Timchill Wildland, we started to teach courses and and start to branch out doing some consulting work, and, and we found a true genius there. Um, we're personable people, at least we think so. We like people. Seems and, like it. Yeah, just a little bit. And, uh, and we started to reach, you know, we started to broaden our reach and reach out and start to throw more events. And, and we found that our genius thrived. And um, in 2018, we shifted that out of the Wildland. We found that the Wildland is a really good organization for pioneering, you know, emergent conservation type agricultural practices, if you will. Uh, we were putting out scientific papers, you know, talking about all of the work we were doing, uh, but not everybody is, is interested in it. Um, and our consulting work and our education work wasn't purely just wilding. And so we, we started a new organization. We called it the Rubinia Institute. Rubinia is the Latin name for the black locust tree, which means the absolute world to us. It's a great tree for many reasons. And uh, we founded the Rubinia Institute to house the education, the consulting, the community arm of the same vision of our work, but a different tangent of that vision. And, and that is outreach. It's not demonstration. It's not food production. 
production. It's not species return. It's about doing those things at other people's farms. And so Rabinia was, was, was born in 2018. Um, full transparency. We reached out to Savory to become a hub. Typically, it goes the other way around. Uh, a lot of my now friends and dear colleagues inside of Savory were invited to be hubs. We were not invited. We, we applied. We reached out. And uh, it's a joke now between a lot of, lot of people within the network, the Savory network and us, uh, because it's when they asked us, why did you apply? Like, this is, this is a little bit interesting. We said, you guys just seemed awesome. We were lonely. And uh, your community and your network is just it's unparalleled and, and, it, and it's giving and, it, and it's graceful and kind. And we wanted to be a part of it. And so, in, or I think it was early, later 2018, I think is what it was. We applied, we went through a, um, to become a savory hub is a long process. It's about 18, it's about a couple months of applications. You have to create a video and it, it's a massive pro- process. And then it's about 18 months worth of onboarding where they, they, they travel you all over the world. They educate you, they throw you through business orientation and business development uh, I would say courses, but courses would be such such an underservice of what they really were. But they really empower you, right? And, th- and that's what the Savory Network is. It, it's not uh, the acquisition uh, of people to serve the greater good. The Savory Network is the allocation of power to people in the community already doing the work, right? And, and in that way, it's a decentralized nodal network with, where the abundance, right, the potential of impact is has no ceiling, right? It has no uh, upper metric that holds it down. It, uh, anyways, I can I can say a lot about Savory. It's 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 great. What we do, right, as a hub, what what the Rabinia Institute does. Uh, I'm the co-founder, executive director, and lead educator. Uh, we, we teach courses uh, all over the country on our farm at Timshaw Wildland here in Central Virginia. Uh, to you know, Pennsylvania. We've taught courses in West Virginia, Maryland, uh, Kentucky, Tennessee, South Carolina, all over the place on holistic management, right? Which is Savory's um, uh, decision-making framework built uh, to help re- you know move forward regenerative ag in a much more holistic way. Uh, we teach that. We teach teachers of that. That's a lot of what we do. We're building uh, you know a lot of the next generation of, of teachers in this movement. And then we teach a lot of other courses. I mean, we teach uh, home butchery. Uh, I'm going to probably say some things where you're like, holy cow, that's the next podcast episode. And so I only mention them and whatever happens or whatever. But, uh, you know, we're building an on-farm slaughtering facility, processing and slaughtering facility, where we teach human scale slaughter of animals that is deeply respectful, that takes the animal from the field and it kills it there. And, and it, and it's just a whole different process than USDA or state inspected facilities. So we're building those processes, we're building those protocols, we're building those actual processing centers, and then we do a lot of educational events out of it so that the food that you put in your body is not just something you buy into, it's not a story, but it's your story. You were there, you were a part of the process. And in that way, it's truly rich in nutrients. It's not just nutrient rich. To us, that's a very different statement. So we teach a lot of those kind of courses. And then uh, we, we also do a lot of consulting work. This is something that was very emergent within the organization. Never did I think that I would have uh, a team of consultants that we work with, that we employ and, and work, I should say, with, as in beside us, uh, to do a lot of land transition consulting work, right? So, uh, you know, the typical quote-unquote client of ours is a grandchild who inherits a farm because the grandfather passed. The farm was a conventional, let's say, 10,000 acre or 100 acre corn, soy, and wheat farm. 
degenerated, you know, for generations. And they say, hey, we want to tell a different story, but we want to tell a different story in, in, in grandpa's name, right? This is part of our story still. We don't want to sell the land. Help us through it. And so we bring in capital, we bring in training, we bring in mentorship and, and consulting events, land planning, and phased implementation plans so that they're not doing it alone. And then we're also building a market right now to actually help them through that process. Because a lot of the reason that farms can't transition today, and I'm sure you've talked to people or you know all about this, is that it's all inclusive, right? You borrow money if you're going to do it a conventional corn, soy, and wheat operation. You borrow money from the bank. The bank then gets uh, insurance on that money as long as you follow practices. You spray, you till, you do whatever it is. You buy from those seed companies that you don't say the names of, right? And then you have a market. You sell it wholesale to a distributor who then sells it, and it just keeps going. So you, as soon as you exit out of that system, as soon as you transition, all of those de-risking factors are gone. Where do you get your money? Where do you get your insurance? Where do you get your market, right? And so if we're not bringing these things back to the conventional scene to then transition it over to regenerative, there is no future, right? That, that has to be a very holistic solvent to this problem. And so we have a large consulting side to our life where we're doing that work, partnering with these land, landowners to help them through that transition process. Anyways, we're doing a lot of work. We're rolling out EOV, ecological outcome verification. It's Savory's uh, science-backed uh, uh, land monitoring protocol that more or less can measure the regeneration or the effective regeneration of a landscape. So it's the understanding that if we can just apply science, mathematics, soil testing, and good observation uh, you know, from or with people that are highly, highly educated in those matters, we can actually measure regeneration in the landscape so that when people are sitting at the farmer's market saying, I raise regenerative grass-fed beef, we can say, yeah, but what is regenerative? Or what does that actually mean? Let's stop greenwashing the term. And are you increasing soil? Are you sequestering carbon? Are you increasing the biodiversity? Is your beef actually more nutrient-rich this year than it was last year? We didn't know these things, else regenerative will just be a greenwash term. So EOV, ecological outcome, is a part of that. Um, I could probably go on and on and on. Oh, wow. But, you know, you can. I wish we could. But I think we've also, um, you know, I, I feel like um, for a while when I started doing podcasts, I was thinking that the ideal time was the the time it took for people to commute. But now they don't commute. So I, I kind of feel like they got a little longer time. I have a feeling that a lot of people are there's some farmers that are doing chores, but there's a lot of people that are out for their walks and the hikes and they'll listen to the podcast. And if we go over an hour, Daniel, I have a feeling that most of them, okay, the run's over by now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> they're back, gone. they're ready to jump in the shower and go get on another Zoom call with because um, they're hybrid workers on things. Tell everybody how they can follow up and get more information about what you're doing and you know the, the whole schmeal here. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, so first and foremost, go to wildtimshull.com. It's our website, wildtimshull.com. Right there. Spell the- You're spelling T-I-M-S-H-E-L? That's right. That's right. Um, if you go there at the very top, uh, you'll learn a lot about us. The site's pretty, pretty uh, content rich, but there's also a video that we just produced. It goes into a lot of our philosophy, a lot of the poetry behind the thing. It's about six minutes long, but that's, that's, that's our site. The book is Wild Like Flowers, The Restoration of Relationship Through Regeneration, Wild Like Flowers. You can buy that on Amazon, Walmart, Target, whatever you want to get your books. It's a book about 
regeneration gone wild, if you will. That's what one of the reviewers uh, called it. it. It's a decent book. I, I think it's pretty good. A lot of people really like it. Um, it's a good place to start, and it's not that expensive. I think it's for sale at ten, you know, for ten dollars there at Amazon. Um, I am here. I, I have decided in as our professional life increased. I get a lot of emails. We get very busy. Uh, we talk on a lot of podcasts, but I will never hire somebody to answer my emails. That is my promise. I never want to be that person. And so go on the website, send me an email. My email is all over it. My wife's email is all over it. Uh, if you buy the book and you want to talk about it, I'm here. It might not be uh, you know, immediate, but we'll schedule a time and, and we'll have a good conversation. My, my 2021 New Year's resolution uh, was to have conversations for no reason at all and see what emerges. And, and so far, it's done me well. And so uh, look at us more, wildtimshow.com, the book, Wild Like Flowers, and then let us know your thoughts. We're on Instagram. We're pretty active on there. You can follow us. I think it's Tim Show Wildland, at Tim Show Wildland is our Instagram handle or whatever people call it. Uh, but we're there, we're present. Reach out, please. Uh, well, this time went too fast. It was fun talking to you. And I've got a lot of other questions that I'm going to want to follow up and we'll have another another conversation sometime. And uh, I really want to thank you for taking the time to being with us on Farm to Table Talk. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. It was a blessing. You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. If you like what you hear, go to farmtotabletalk.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter or go to iTunes to subscribe and give us a review and a rating. Thanks for listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. Roger Wasson.